Hey, can I sit there? Sure. You eat like the Starlock monster, my young Padawan. Newton's first law of motion. An object in motion will stay in motion unless... It's okay, I didn't expect you to know that on the first day. Acted on by another force. Acted on by another force. Very good. Here's how it works. A moving object will only change its speed or direction if something else causes it to do that. Hey, Darth Hideous, did you hear? Padawan braids were lame 15 years ago. Supposedly with a D. Dude, more like they were always lame. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Later, Barf Hideous. Hey. Hey, Mom. Augie, you're supposed to knock. I'm serious this time. Someone make fun of it? I, for one, had a great day. Just trying to lighten the mood. Right, Daisy? Right, good girl. Well, I went to um, Kinko's today to see if they could get my thesis off this. You're gonna finish your dissertation? What is that? It's a floppy disk. A what? Come on, you, a floppy. These kids today, it, it, it's, it's basically an iPhone. You know, it doesn't play music or you can't call, but. They couldn't get the file. That's okay, you'll find a place. Well, I think it's great, Mom. Maybe. Thank you. So, Augie? Yeah? Hi. How was your first day of school? We asked you a question. Come on, how was your day? Good. Good how? Good like it was good? Or good like it was bad and you just don't want to tell us? It was good, okay? I just don't know what you want me to say. It was good. Okay, okay, hey. If you're mad at mom about going to school, it was my idea too. Why can't I just say good like anybody else? Are they gonna ask about my day? 
Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here, and I thought it might be a good idea to start the message with an apology. Uh, you've heard people say, be careful what you pray for. If you want God to give you more patience and you start praying for that, you can kind of expect God is going to put circumstances or people in your life who will test or try your patience and cause your patience to grow. Uh, we're in the middle of a message series. We're actually ending it today called Finding God in the Tough Stuff. So maybe it should not be a surprise that over the last couple of weeks, maybe it seems like God has been shining a spotlight on the tough stuff of your life. What's tough in your life these days? It's tough being a teenager. It's tough being a parent. Uh, It's tough being single. It's tough being married. Tough having a job. Tough being unemployed. All kinds of tough things. It's tough being any of those things. And then it's tough having 10 inches of rain fall on your house in about two hours, isn't it? So that clip we just watched is from a a movie called Wonder based on a best-selling, award-winning book by the same title. Uh, Augie Pullman has had a tough first day of school. And he comes home and his parents want to talk to him about it and he doesn't really want to talk about it. And they're going back and forth, going back and forth. All the focus, all the attention is on Augie and, and what's going on, the tough stuff in his life. And then his older sister, Olivia, they call her Via, she turns to the family dog and asks this rhetorical question, are they going to ask about my day? Rhetorical question, answer to which is no. She's feeling ignored and overlooked. I don't want anybody to feel ignored or or, or overlooked today, so I thought we should probably just start by asking you, how has your week been going? In fact, let's do that. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up and find somebody close to you. And just kind of ask them, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being dry basement, 1 being raw sewage. Do you remember, I remember the flood of 1993, they're talking about raw sewage in the streets. I'm like, do people cook this stuff? What do you mean, raw sewage? Anyway, how has your week been? Talk amongst yourselves. Find somebody that has nobody to talk to and talk to them. That's enough time. You, You can talk about it more after the service. Have a seat. Have a seat. Now... I said I wanted to begin with an apology. The apology is not for you introverts who are just made to be very uncomfortable. The apology is not that we're doing a message series called Finding God in the Tough Stuff, like it was the power that we had to connect a message series to what's going on. I mean, we try to be relevant, but we don't have that kind of power. The apology is simply because life is tough. And I'm sorry for whatever tough stuff you find yourself going through these days. I'm I'm sorry that in the midst of the tough stuff, often it can feel like you are completely lost and God is nowhere to be found. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we do, how about we just spend a little bit of time in prayer? Would you pray with me, please? So, Lord, we've we've gathered here today in this room and uh, the people have come from all sorts of different places, all sorts of different reasons why people are here today, circumstances that have brought people here today. Uh, My prayer is that you would help all of us uh, believe the truth that you know exactly what we are all going through, collectively and individually. I pray that you would remove distractions, you would open our ears, open the eyes of our hearts so that we could hear, so that we could see exactly what it is you're trying to show us about yourself today. I pray in the midst of the tough stuff, you would help us become faithful people who endure through this tough stuff, who uh, our character is strengthened through this tough stuff, that you would give us faith to put our hope in you, 
in your love, in your life, in, in your grace. And all this we pray in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, the only name that saves. Amen. All right. Guiding question today, where is God when I feel lost? We're just going to answer that question right up front. Not so that you can leave early, but so that as we explore the question, we can have the answer in the back of our minds. Where is God when I feel lost? Jesus answers the question. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. The Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Son of Man is a title that Jesus gives to himself. He's, he doesn't want you to wonder. What's Jesus' purpose? What is Jesus up to? Why did Jesus come? He's trying to make it as clear as he can. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. If you believe Jesus is God, then the answer to the question, where is God when I feel lost? God's seeking you out. God is looking for you. God is coming to you. Let's talk about this word lost for a little bit. It's a biblical term, but it seems like over the years it's kind of become misused in church world. Jesus uses it. Old Testament writers use it. In our day, when we talk about the word lost, it's almost like we're using it as an us versus them kind of term. When we talk about lost and found, it's almost like it's code for who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't belong, who's welcome and who's unwelcome. And of course, that's missing Jesus' point. The way we talk about it at Hope, we have a mission reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. We also have a vision who we want God to help us become, a group of people who are spirited and growing and Christ-centered, filled with hope. It's our mission and that's our vision. And as we move into our vision, as we carry out the mission, we have these guiding principles. We call them core values that help us uh, kind of stay on the tracks and, and be moving in, in the right direction. So I want us to read out loud together core value number two. It's on the screen. Read it with me. Lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. Lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. Now, I don't know what pops into your head when you think of this phrase, lost people, but I think most of us have a, a pretty narrowly defined category. These are the people who are lost people. So you got terrorists, you got atheists, and you got St. Louis Cardinals baseball fans. These are <laughs> lost, lost people, right? And of course, the Bible has a much broader definition than that. Now, one of the ways that the biblical writers talk about the relationship God has with human beings is this, I don't know, metaphor, uh, image of a shepherd and the relationship a shepherd has with a flock of sheep. So think about King David, uh, one of the great kings of the, the nation of Israel. When he's growing up, he's actually taking care of his father's flock. He's a shepherd boy. He becomes king, he writes songs, he's also a musician, so the Psalms are in the Bible, Psalm 23, one of the most recognized Bible passages. He begins it by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. David's saying, I'm a sheep, and the Lord is my shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Protects sheep, sure. Also guides and directs sheep. Make sure they're in the right place. Make sure the sheep don't get lost. Almost unanimous agreement among scholars, David is the author of Psalm 119. Here's part of what Psalm 119 says. I have wandered away like a lost sheep. Come and find me, for I have not forgotten your commands. So if we're asking the question, where's God when I feel lost, it'd probably be good to ask, how do we get to that place where we feel lost? 
How do we end up in, in places in life where we actually are lost? And part of what David is saying is it has something to do with remembering the commands of the Lord. And if you know anything about David's life and an affair that he falls into with a woman named Bathsheba and the trouble that that causes in his life, you know part of the way in which David gets lost is because of his disobedience, because of his sin. Because he decides at some point in his life, I don't want the Lord to be my shepherd, I want to be my own shepherd. I want to pick which way I want to go, and it ends up leading to a place where he's lost. David, one of the most faithful characters in all the Bible, is a lost person. Old Testament writers use similar language. Isaiah will say, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone, everybody is lost or experiences these times of of feeling lost, being lost. Jeremiah puts it this way, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and turned them loose in the mountains. They've lost their way and can't remember how to get back to the sheepfold. Even Jesus in the New Testament uses this kind of language. He refers to the people of Israel as God's lost sheep. So faithful people all throughout the scriptures say, One of the labels that you can put on God's people is that they are lost people. Anybody, anybody, everybody can carry that label lost. Uh, One of the helpful ways of thinking about this for me has been uh, boundary markers. Uh, If you're not familiar with boundary markers, the the definition I kind of work with is a boundary marker is a highly visible, relatively superficial way of determining who, who is part of a group. That's a boundary marker. Highly visible, relatively superficial way of determining what group you are a part of. So I'm going to put some images up on the screen and we'll we'll just kind of figure out how did this boundary marker thing work. So I'll put the picture up there and then I'll ask you together, we'll just kind of call out what group do those people belong to. Does that sort of make sense? I think you can do it. Let's try it. All right. Image number one, we've got a group, a couple of people on the screen. What group do they belong to? Hippies, that's right. You know how to play this game. You guys are brilliant. Okay, this is boundary markers. Relatively superficial but highly visible ways of telling what group. So, what group do these dudes belong to? Hipsters. Yeah, hippies is the first one. Hipsters is the second one. Some people said millennial in the earlier services, and they're probably millennial too, but I'm looking for more specific than that. So we got hippies, we got hipsters. One more picture. This is a hipster pastor right here. I mean, look at this guy. He's got, that's a, at least a wannabe hipster beard going on right there. Some of you got better beards than Eli, but he said I could put that. Anyway, boundary markers. Highly visible, relatively superficial ways of determining who's in a group. And in Jesus' day, the religious leadership of Jesus' day, they were all focused on boundary markers. How do you tell if you're really a a son of Abraham, a child of God, you're part of the family of faith? Well, uh, dietary laws, Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, these were kind of the things they focused on. Jesus comes on the scene, and, and he busts through these boundaries all the time. He's always being accused, Jesus and his followers, they're not clean enough. They don't honor the Sabbath the way that you're supposed to honor the Sabbath. They're always accusing him of breaking Sabbath law. And Jesus is, is like, come on, people. Can we get, get the focus off these silly exterior kinds of realities? And Jesus is always teaching to try to help people understand the focus needs to be interior. Not exterior, but interior. 
Yes, I know there's all of these laws and all these commandments about cleanliness and Sabbath keeping and all that, but the heart of it, the core of it all, the center of it all, love God and love others. And Jesus is always pointing people in that direction. His earliest followers understood this. You, you read the writings of Paul. He will say, look, if I have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, if I give all my money to the poor, but I don't love, doesn't mean anything. It's worthless. It's mean. And John will say, whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And that's the heart of faith. Love. Love God, love others. And of course, Jesus did that better than anyone who's ever lived. And people who are a lot smarter than me, people like Eli. I was, I was talking to him about uh, this, this message earlier in the week, kind of, here's where I think I'm going. He's like, oh, it sounds like you're talking about the difference between bounded set theory and centered set theory. And I said, yes, yes, that's exactly what, I have no idea what he was talking about. So Eli quickly taught me. Here, here's bounded set. Uh, the idea behind this is there are some places in life where actually this is an important thing to do, but when it comes to faith, this can kind of mess us up. So if you want to be part of the in-group, in-bounded set, there is a boundary, a defining boundary, and only people inside that boundary can be part of that group. And so if you're inside the boundary, uh, you are found. If you're outside the boundary, you're lost. Inside the boundary, you belong, you're welcome. Outside the boundary, we don't really have to pay any attention to you. Does that sound like Jesus? I think Jesus is, if you look closely how he interacts with people, he's doing something significantly different from this. Centered set theory kind of fits in with uh, how Jesus approaches conversations with people. There is a goal, there is a target, there is a center that we're, we're shooting for, that we're aiming for, and Jesus, well, love would be the center God is love, Jesus is, is God personified, love personified. Our vision, be spirited, growing, Christ-centered. This target represents Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, we want to be his disciples so that we learn to love more and more the way Jesus loves all the time. But part of what you see in the centered set is there's no boundary. Instead, you've got some people who are really close to the center, some people farther away from the center, but that's not what determines whether or not you are lost or found. What determines whether or not you're lost or found, what direction the arrow is pointing. Which direction are you moving? Think about our Bible passage for today from Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he, the Lord, who is your shepherd, will direct your path. He will make your paths straight. He will show you which way to go? Lead you on the right paths for his name's sake so that you don't get lost, so that you're found. And so part of what you see over here in Centered Set, you got a person up here who's really close to the center, really close to Jesus, arrows pointing in the wrong direction, they're lost. Jesus' disciples find themselves in this place pretty frequently, don't they? Betraying him, denying him, they're close to him, closer than anybody but they find themselves lost sometimes. David finds himself lost. We all find ourselves lost sometimes. At the same time, there's this woman up here in the corner, about as far away from the center as anyone on, on this diagram, on this chart. Look at the, what direction her arrow is pointing toward the center. She's not lost. She is found. And when you look at how Jesus interacts with people, this is what you start to see, this kind of reality. 
It's not about who's in and who's out. It's about what direction are you going. Is your life oriented toward the center, toward Jesus? Now, I like all kinds of things about uh, this movie, Wonder, but uh, the author describes Augie as an ordinary boy with an extraordinary face. One of the things that uh, I liked about the movie, they show how still today boundary markers are used to determine who's in and who's out who deserves to be treated with love and who deserves to be mistreated. And with our kind of primary definition or understanding of what it means to be lost, I think most of us would say the primary lost person in this story is Augie. And of course he is lost in all, all kinds of ways, but he's not the only one. Pretty much every character in the movie is lost. His mom is lost to some degree. She has sacrificed her career for the sake of figuring out some things for the family, puts her uh, dissertation on the back burner, but now she wants to move forward and, and get her doctorate. But at the same time, she's like not sure if that's the right move. She's not sure she has what it takes to actually accomplish it. Maybe, she says, maybe this is a good thing. Uh, his sister, Via, always feeling like all the focus is always on Augie and his problems and his, his challenges and his tough stuff. And so she feels overlooked and ignored. Thankfully, she has a best friend named Miranda, but Miranda has abandoned Via. Comes home from a summer camp and won't respond to phone calls or texts, ignores Via in the hallways, and Via is lost as she's trying to figure out what has she done to upset her friend. But it turns out it has nothing to do with Via, and it has everything to do with Miranda's own lostness. Take a look. Via and I have been best friends since kindergarten. Her family's always been like my second family. Augie's always felt like my little brother. How's it feel? Awesome. Good. For a few years even, our family spent Christmas together. Everybody say Merry Christmas! Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas! But now my dad's busy with his new wife, who was his old boss. And my mom will She's busy not getting over that. I got a job at a summer camp, just so I'd have somewhere to go that wasn't home. One day, and I swear I didn't plan this, but I started playing this little make-believe game with the girls in the camp. I said I lived in a huge brownstone on a nice street with my two awesome parents and my awesome dog named Daisy and my awesome little brother with a facial deformity. And oh my God, everyone went crazy. What do you mean deformity? What does he look like? Suddenly everyone wanted to talk to me. And by the end of summer, I was the most popular girl in camp. When I got home, I wanted to call Via, but she would have asked me about my parents and about camp. And then I saw Via audition for the play, and I remembered how cool she is. 
and how I understood why everyone in camp loved me more when I pretended to be her. Lost people matter to God. Lost people are loved by God. Lost people deserve to be loved by others. Our mission is to reach out to the world around us, to share that love with the world around us. If we're going to do that as effectively as we can, the words of G.K. Chesterton might be helpful. He writes, the way to love anything is to realize that it might be lost. The way to love anything is to realize that it might be lost. Is there anyone in your life these days that you're struggling to love? The relationship is challenging. You don't understand why they're saying the things they're saying or doing the things that they are doing. Maybe it's even hurtful. I wonder if it's an opportunity for you to kind of reframe things. And instead of focusing on what they're doing, maybe the question is why are they doing it? In what way might they be lost? So many of the characters in this movie are lost. Miranda is lost. And part of what I hoped you noticed in that clip, her lostness is closely connected to her hiddenness. Her lostness is closely connected to her hiddenness. David says he gets lost sometimes when he doesn't obey uh, the commands of the Lord. There are other ways we find, ourse- we find ourselves lost or, or feeling lost. Sometimes we, we're lost because we're hiding parts of ourselves that we think are unlovable. That's what Miranda is doing, but that's also what Augie is doing. He's wearing this astronaut helmet to cover up his face because he thinks that's the part of him that's not lovable. Uh, Via develops a relationship uh, with with a boy uh, throughout the movie, and she tells him she's an only child because she's worried all the drama around her little brother might cause that guy not to love her. There's a bully in the movie. His name is Julian, and part of what the movie shows is the way bullying is a way for Julian to hide or cover up the hurts in his life. And all this time and energy and effort that the people in this movie are making trying to hide, it leads to a tremendous sense of being lost for all of them. And that's kind of the human condition, isn't it? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and immediately they hide. And God allows it. God allows people to hide. God will allow you to hide, but make no mistake about it. God comes looking for people who are lost, looking for people who are hiding. One of the classic examples is the story of Jesus' encounter with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 19 and and read about this story. Uh, Oftentimes in in the Bible, we are told that tax collectors are, are notorious sinners. Tax collectors are hated and despised. It's what the biblical writers will tell us. But we hardly ever talk about why. Why are they hated? Why are they despised? In, in Jesus' day, there's this real interesting kind of dynamic where there's governmental laws that are ruling society, but there are also religious laws that are ruling society, telling people how to act and what to do. And so the religious leaders would create all kinds of categories, even around occupations. Here are good occupations. Here are not so good occupations for you to have if you want to be a faithful person and if you want to belong to the group. And so one of the categories were, here are the occupations that will carry a heavy social stigma. And of course, tax collector made that list. Another occupation that made the list was dung collector. 
In Jesus' day, there were people, it was their job to collect all the manure from the villages and the, and the towns, the animals that everybody had. Somebody's job was, was to do that. And so what the religious leaders had said, if a woman marries a man who is a dung collector, she can divorce him and she can get a sum of money so that she can start a, a whole new kind of life. And they, the rabbis even said, if she knew going into the marriage that he was going to become a dung collector... She can still say, I thought I could stand it, but I cannot, and they would grant her the divorce. So there's all these different categories. One of the categories was um, jobs that are considered immoral, and tax collector made that job. What made tax collector immoral? Roman Empire is occupying Israel at the time, and they don't really care about the people of Israel. They just want that property because it's right along the trade route. If, if you're going to uh, have this economic trade happening between Europe and uh, Africa, you have to go through Israel by land. And so it was an important piece for economic reasons. They cared about Israel, the Romans did, only for money. They're trying to wring as much money as they can out of the nation of Israel. And so tax collectors did this for the Romans whoever bid the highest would get the job. And so Zacchaeus, uh, maybe he went to the Roman official and said, I can get $1,000 per person per year for taxes if you give the job to me. And they say, okay, Zacchaeus, the job is yours. The Romans also said, you have to get the amount that we agree upon, but if you can get more than that, you can keep the difference. So Zacchaeus might say, your bill is 2000 or your bill is 5000 And he'd give 1000 to the Romans and he'd pocket the rest. And so that's how tax collectors got wealthy. They were considered traitors, robbing from their brothers and sisters, their countrymen and women, and giving the money to the enemy, to the opposition. And so kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Why would anyone decide, that's the job for me? A job where I will be hated and despised and considered a traitor. How does Zacchaeus end up in that profession? The Bible doesn't tell us. But if we use some logical reasoning, we can start to put the pieces together, can't we? Uh, they, they say, maybe you've heard it said, in order to be considered a tr- an attractive man, you need three qualities, tall, dark, and handsome. Exhibit A. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Zacchaeus only had two out of three, right? We're told that, that all they tell us about Zacchaeus is he's short. Maybe you sang the song in church when you were growing up. He's a wee little man. So, Why would someone like Zacchaeus end up in a profession where he's hated and despised? Maybe that's how he grew up, being hated and despised because of a physical attribute. Could you imagine anyone being teased and mistreated because of a physical attribute? Boundary marker? Happens all the time, doesn't it? And so maybe Zacchaeus decides, I'm going to show that I'm a big man in the only way I know how. And he focuses his whole life on becoming rich getting enough money that he can show them. They shouldn't have mistreated him. And then he has the opportunity to actually get wealthy by hurting the people who have have hurt him. And he says, let's do it. Might as well. What do I have to lose? And so he gains a whole lot of power and he gains a whole lot of wealth, but he continues to live in this lost existence. And then Zacchaeus hears one day that Jesus is coming to his town. And the Bible tells us Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. Why? Why is this hated and despised tax collector, why does he want to see Jesus? Again, doing a little digging around it, it doesn't take a whole lot. Luke chapter 5. The Bible doesn't tell us why he wants to see Jesus. 
But Luke chapter 5, Jesus is pulling his team together, his team of disciples, 12 disciples. And, and one of them, in Luke 5, he calls a guy named Matthew, tax collector, to be his disciple. And then we're told that Matthew, he's called Levi in Luke 5, but it's, it's all, we know him better as Matthew. He throws a party, invites all his tax collector buddies to come. Jesus is the guest of honor at this party. We're told the religious establishment is wondering why is Jesus eating with such scum? We don't know if Zacchaeus was invited to the party, but do you suppose that word would have traveled fast in tax collector circles? This guy, Jesus, he's got this incredible healing ministry. A lot of people think that he's maybe the Messiah, maybe the Son of God, maybe the Savior of the world. He's hanging out and partying with tax collectors. Do you think maybe Zacchaeus thought, if Jesus is coming to my town, I need to check this out. I need to see if this guy is for real. I need to see if this kind of love is for real. And so Jesus is coming to town, whole crowd of people have gathered, because pretty much everywhere Jesus goes, there's a crowd following him around, and Zacchaeus climbs up in the sycamore tree. He wants to see Jesus, he can't see through the crowd, at least that's his excuse for getting up in the tree. That's probably not the full story. Don't you think the full story is he's hiding? He wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't want Jesus to see him, and he doesn't want the crowd to see him. Jesus starts making his way through the town, he's coming closer and closer to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus can tell that he's going to have a pretty good view of Jesus. And then something unexpected happens. As Jesus approaches that spot where Zacchaeus is, Jesus stops and Jesus looks up in the tree and Jesus makes eye contact with Zacchaeus. What do you suppose is going on in Zacchaeus' heart? What do you suppose his heart rate is doing at that moment? And then to make matters worse, Jesus yells out Zacchaeus' name looking up in the tree, and he says, Zacchaeus. What do you think the crowd is thinking? They've just heard Jesus utter the name of the man that they hate and despise. Maybe they're thinking, oh good, finally, somebody's going to put Zacchaeus in his place. Somebody's going to heap him with loads of judgment and shame because of the despicable person that he is. What do you suppose Zacchaeus is thinking at this point? He's just been exposed. His hiding place is no longer protecting him. Instead, he's probably embarrassed. Maybe he's scared, scared that he's going to get attacked verbally by the crowd. Maybe he's scared he'll get attacked physically by the crowd. What is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to say? How is Jesus going to respond in this situation? Let's read it together. Verse 5, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Jesus calls Zacchaeus out of hiding, and Zacchaeus climbs down the tree. Where is God when I feel lost? If you're feeling lost, if you're wondering what is it in your life that has you lost, a good question to ask yourself is, what in my life, what in my life am I most apt to hide from others? Another way of thinking about it, what problem in my life am I willing to live with as long as nobody else finds out about it? What problem in my life am I willing to live with as long as nobody else finds out about it? Jesus knew all about Zacchaeus' problems. You might expect Jesus to say, Zacchaeus, get out of that tree, and you need to go get a new job. Stop doing this immoral job. Get, get a job that's respectable. 
And then, you know, kind of apologize to everybody, repent of everything that you've done. And then if you clean up your act, Zacchaeus, then I will come to your home. Then I'll share a meal with you. Then we can start a relationship. But I can't do that until you change. I got a reputation to uphold. I can't be seen hanging out with scum, notorious sinner. People are going to think I'm condoning your behavior. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus never does that. Instead, what Jesus says, or what he does, he befriends Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus becomes respectable. Well, let me say that again, because this is pretty important. Jesus befriends Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus becomes respectable. If I were to make a, a list of what are the sins the people in this part of the world, in this community, really struggle with, I wonder if one of them might be the sin of respectability. That instead of keeping Jesus at the center of our lives, instead of making our focus, how do I become more and more like Jesus? Some of us, we've made respectability the focus of our life. How do I shape my life? How do I uh, shape my marriage, my family, all appearances so that when people look at me, they say, that guy's got it going on. That guy's got, got it all figured out. He's got it all together. No messes in that guy's life. But none of us can do that. None of us are respectable. In order to put off the image of respectability, we have to hide certain realities of our life. And I think for all kinds of reasons, we believe the way God looks at us is, first you have to get all, everything figured out and cleaned up and put together, and then I can love you. And part of what that means is that, that's what we think everybody is viewing us. Once you get your life figured out and put together, then you can be loved. Because deep down, there's parts of us that we don't love. And so we think nobody else can possibly love that either. we we got to hide that. And it causes us to be lost in our failures, lost in our hurt, lost in our sin and shame. But what does God's love do? It calls us out of hiding. God's love calls Zacchaeus out of hiding. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save those who are lost, and he's coming to seek and to save you. To try to help you see it's time to stop hiding. It's not very hard to see in this movie all the ways in which love seeks and saves people who are lost. It's what goes on in, in Augie's life, for sure. He's, he's hiding in, in this astronaut helmet for a lot of his life. He's hiding the part of himself that he thinks is unlovable. But when he's getting ready to go into fifth grade and his mom and dad say, no more homeschooling for you, it's time to go to uh, this private school that they're putting him into with classmates, and we've got to figure out how you're going to do life. It becomes a really hard year. He doesn't get to wear uh, that helmet anymore. And so hard lesson after hard lesson after hard lesson. Really tough stuff, but important lessons for Augie. One of the most important lessons If you really want to experience love, if you really want to be loved, you got to come out of hiding. Take a look. Looking sharp. Thanks, Dad. I'm talking about me. Hey, ah, you look good, too. I think it's safe to say the Pullman men are crushing it today. You come a long way, huh? Yeah. Augie, I am proud of you for sticking it out. You didn't think I would, did you? Of course I did. Okay, well, come on, you gotta, I mean, when you started, you were still wearing the astronaut helmet in public. I love that helmet. 
I wish I knew where it was. It's in my office. What? Yeah. Dad, that was a gift. I, I had nowhere to hide it. Augie, Augie, please don't be mad. You gotta understand, you were wearing it all the time. I never got to see you anymore. I missed your face. I know you don't always like it, but I love it. It's my son's face. I want to see it. You forgive me? No. Yes. Does mom know? No, God, no, she'd kill me. But I can maybe find it if you need it back. That's okay. Let's stand together. Would you pray with me, please? So, Lord, we're finishing this series, finding you in the tough stuff. Where are you in our failures? Where are you in our hurt? Where are you when we feel lost? And as I, as I watch that scene, I can't help but think that sometimes you, our good, good Heavenly Father, you have to remove from us the things that we hold on to, the things that we hide behind, the things that we think are protecting us, that, that are covering up the parts of us we think are unlovable. But sometimes maybe you take those away from us because we just can't let go of them on our own. So maybe part of the prayer is to give you permission to do that, to hide our masks somewhere out of reach so that you can see our face so that we can have a relationship where we talk to one another face to face as though we're talking to friends because that's the love that you have for us. And I pray that you would help us to believe love is the starting place and, and transformation is going to happen. That's, that's a part of it. But love, your love for us is what fuels the transformation. We can't fix ourselves on our own. But when we know, when we are secure in love, your love for us, that can change everything. It changed everything for Zacchaeus. It can change everything for us. It can save us when we're lost. And we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.